Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome to Top of the Morning on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. Our conversation today will shed light on some notable economic challenges, the potential longevity of them, and how this all might be translating to investor sentiment as well as monetary policy. Plus, we will walk you through the current asset allocation recommendations from the Chief Investment Office, including the role alternatives can play. Joining me for the conversation today, glad to welcome back to Top of the Morning, both Jason Dreho, Head of Asset Allocation Americas, as well as David Lefkowitz, Head of Equities Americas, from the UBS Chief Investment Office. So Jason, David, great to be with you both. As always, thank you for spending some time with our listeners, our clients, and looking forward to our conversation today. Good morning, Dan. Thanks for having us, Dan. Absolutely. So maybe as a starting point, Jason, taking inventory of the economic challenges on the minds of investors, and these were laid out within the most recent UBS House View, which, by the way, is available now up on UBS.com forward slash CIO. Though you think about supply chain constraints, price inflation, namely energy prices, as well as labor force shortages. Now, while near term, these challenges, they might appear dire, a CIO believes them to be temporary. So why exactly? is that, Jason? So, uh, Dan, what you kind of alluded to in a lot of cases was things that are on the supply side of the economy, you know, kind of labor supply shortage, you know, there are sort of energy prices going higher because of, you know, maybe insufficient supply, at least in the short term. But I think we also need to look at the demand side of the economy. Um, and that is holding up very, very well. Uh, there's no signs of, you know, uh, higher prices, inflation leading to any sort of demand destruction. Spending measures are still very strong. They're even kind of picking up. Uh, you know, as companies reported... In third quarter earnings, there's no signs of kind of demand being impaired by higher prices. Revenue growth is is still very solid. So the consumer basically side of the economy is, is holding up, you know, quite well. They're being able to deal with these higher, uh, you know, prices that have gone up. Uh, we're also seeing signs of growth, you know, sort of reaccelerated in the uh, in the fourth quarter. We got third quarter GDP numbers last week, and it came in around two percent. But the way the data is trending right now, it could be between like 4 and 5% in, in the fourth quarter. So there's a bit of a summer slowdown as the Delta variant kind of picked up with cases. Once that alleviated really more clearly by the end of September, early October, we're now seeing sort of this bit of kind of growth acceleration. So that part of the equation still looks very, you know, solid. And there's no reason to think it's going to, or good reason to think it's going to change materially in the next, you know, few quarters. Uh, on, these, on the supply side, the inflation side, you know, the numbers are definitely high and there's still, you know, widely acknowledged supply constraints. But the problem doesn't appear to be getting any, any worse. And maybe in some cases, it's getting marginally better. So if we just think about inflation, the the level is still at 5%. It's likely to stay that way until or even higher into the first quarter. But if you look at the sort of momentum, it's starting to sort of decelerate, meaning so the month over month change, or if you look at the three month change versus the six month change, it's all showing that inflation is still high, but it's not getting any worse. Uh, and we know as a result, then mathematically, if prices aren't really kind of still going up year over year, then once we move into the second quarter next year, mathematically, they're going to start to, inflation will start to drop. Uh, and same thing on the supply side, uh, there's still bottlenecks, but we also hear some anecdotes. You know, for example, I think, you know, you know some companies returning three quarter earnings reported that things were bad, but it started to get better in the, in the fourth quarter. So it may take at least a few more months, probably not until the end of the first quarter for them to really kind of start to, to dissipate to some extent, but when we look at these things, it kind of gives us comfort that, um, you know, well, the headline numbers look dire. If you actually look at the underlying momentum and the trend in terms of both demand and consumer spending, as well as the inflation trends, they should get better. That doesn't mean there isn't some still risks. And certainly if we look 12 months out for inflation, 
whether it's shelter costs going up, wage costs staying really elevated, or expectations staying elevated, that definitely leads to some risk that inflation stays uncomfortably high for the Fed. Uh, but I think right now, there's I think the worst of this stagflation period is just kind of all, it's somewhat overstated. Okay, so looking out over the longer term, as you alluded to, Jason, no question that investors are faced with uncertainty in some areas, though, as you pointed out, Jason, the Q3 reporting season could help by offering us some clarity on the severity and the potential duration of these economic challenges. So, uh, David, what have you been picking up on from the reporting, which has been underway over the past few weeks? Yeah, thanks, Dan. Uh, so I would say, you know, in general, most companies are managing through this environment reasonably well, certainly much better than feared. Um, just to give you some perspective, earnings results are coming in uh, about just over 10% higher than what analyst expectations were. Um, and this is leading to over 35% earnings growth on a year-over-year basis in the quarter. And you know, perhaps even, even a little bit surprising, uh, the positive surprise here is that profit margins are, are actually coming in better than expected. And, and I think it's important to bear in mind, and Jason sort of touched on this, you know, companies, if you look at the S&P 500, revenue growth is over 15% year-over-year. So, you know, that that's a... In that kind of environment, when uh, the top line is so strong, the sales growth is so strong, it's it's certainly much easier for companies to uh, to contend with some of the challenges that that are out there. And then I would say, you know, the other thing is that uh, if we look at analyst revisions or estimate revisions for the fourth quarter, they've been fairly benign in, in the sense that. Uh, for the the fourth quarter estimates actually gone up a little bit over the last few weeks. So even though there are some challenges out there, uh, it doesn't appear that uh, that that this is t- that is causing uh, analysts to revise lower their expectations for earnings growth over the coming quarters. Now, look, I, I mean, I think there are some exceptions, right? I mean, the semiconductor shortage seems to have uh, expanded to you know now impacting PCs and, and smartphones logistics expenses are are still rising and we've seen some companies that are having a more difficult time contending with things like like labor costs and, and these are mostly in industries that are very labor intensive like transports or, or restaurants uh, but I think you know as Jason mentioned, the other thing that's also important to bear in mind here is that end demand remains robust. We were talking about that uh, very strong revenue growth. And, you know, as the supply side of the economy begins to catch up with, with the demand side, we think some of these, uh, these, these challenges will, will begin to improve in, in the months ahead, but it, it's, it certainly will take some time. Um, and, but overall, you know, just given the very strong demand environment that should lead to, some pretty good earnings growth in in the in the quarters ahead, and that's I don't think there's anything that we've heard from from earnings season that that changes our view on that, Dan. Okay, so some encouraging developments on the earnings front, and you do have to wonder how the Fed is analyzing all of this. I know we do have a key central bank meeting here in the U.S. this week, and if you look around the globe, there are indications of central banks rolling back pandemic-era policy measures. We did hear from some last week. Uh, Jason, how do you believe the Fed is interpreting the economic challenges you spoke about a few moments ago, and what do you expect the policy path forward might look like? 
Well, the Fed has the FOMC meeting this week, uh, and we'll find out at 2 p.m. on Wednesday what uh, they intend to do in terms of policy and communication. And then later on in the afternoon, Fed Chair Jay Powell will give a press conference and go into more detail. Yeah, it's widely expected that they're going to announce the start of tapering uh, and whether they begin commencing reducing those bond purchases this month in a matter of a couple of weeks or late you know, to December. That That's, I guess, you know, a little bit uncertain, probably in November, so they can just kind of get started right away. Um, if they don't do that, I'm going to be very surprised if they don't announce tapering because this is widely anticipated. Uh, in terms of the data, because they believe that you know, growth is still good and inflation uh, is, is going to be ultimately kind of you know, not you know, uh, permanent, it's going to be sort of transitory by their definition, I think what they're going to do is try and sort of walk the line, at least from a communication perspective, to say something that you know, inflation is staying elevated, um, you know, and we can, may con- continue for a few more months, but we don't think it's going to last. So they don't want to necessarily drop the word to transitory, but they'll sort of downplay it. But I think that's still their view is that by you know, this time next year and next summer, inflation will, will drop, you know, quite considerably. Uh, and as a result, they also want to be kind of clear in terms of separating, you know, tapering from rate hikes. The expectation is that they will start tapering, you know, you know very shortly, and that will be done by mid-June. And that leaves them ready to be able to raise rates as soon as, as July. Um, they don't want to say after they're going to kind of transition that quickly from tapering to rate hikes. So they're going to try and sit, you know, separate it and say, like, there's, there's a distinction between the two. If you look at what the Fed is actually forecasting right now for inflation, and this could change, you know, not this month, but next month in December when they update their summary of economic projections, it's hard to see them, you know, raising rates before kind of the end of 2020, 2022 at the earliest, if not until 2023. Uh, and a couple other considerations is that while we focus a lot on inflation and what the Fed needs to do to control inflation, they do have a dual mandate, the other being full employment in addition to price stability. Given sort of the projections of the labor market recovery, I think they could see sort of full employment by the end of next year. But, you know, if there's concerns about inflation, will they kind of have give themselves some wiggle room in terms of what they mean in terms of full employment? If they get back an employment rate below 4%, will that be sufficient? Earlier in the year, they were talking about the you know, maximum employment, things like that, which would have implied a even more dovish perspective. So where they end up sort of falling on this is, you know, still a little bit uncertain. So it creates a little bit of ambiguity in terms of what they'd really want to raise rates. Uh, and the final thing is that the Fed leadership is still a little bit in doubt. Uh, Jay Powell's chair, or Rolla's chair, officially expires at the end of January. Um, will he be reappointed or not? Uh, will be someone be replacing him? In addition, there's a number of, you know, senior leadership roles that have to be replaced. So that by June, when tapering is done, you know, a big part of senior management can change. Uh, it's probably more likely than not that Powell gets reappointed, but it's almost close to a toss-up at this point in time, but we don't know when it's going to happen. If he is replaced and other people are replaced, it's likely to be even more dovish than it is now, meaning uh, the criteria for raising rates is going to be even you know, higher than it is today. So I think that's another reason to think that you know a summer hike is probably you know, an optimistic scenario, it's more likely to be later in the year still. Yeah, some interesting variables when you take into account the potential leadership changes at the top there at the Fed, though. All eyes will be on the Fed this week, and I know that will be followed by the labor report coming out on Friday as well, so a lot to look out for over the next few days. If we look back to Friday, spend a moment on equity markets, you did have the three major U.S. indices, uh, the Dow Jones, S&P 500, NASDAQ, all close at record highs. So, David, how are these valuations justified and what's the case for this bull run to continue when you do consider the challenges, some of the unknowns that we've mentioned already? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Dan. So 
Yeah, just a couple of comments on on valuations. Um, yeah, actually, I mean, valuations have actually improved or have actually gone down uh, a little bit this year. So we started the year. If you look at the S and P 500, PE ratio was over 22 times. Now we're we're uh, just over 21. So it, it, they have gone down a little bit, and that's because earnings growth has been so strong. Uh, it's it's more than more than offset the. Uh, the gains that we've seen in the market this year. Um, so, you know, that absolute level of, is is high by historical standards, but if you look relative to bonds, stocks look pretty reasonable. They, they look actually look kind of attractive relative to bonds. So, you know, the fact that interest rates are so low is, is, is definitely helping uh, stock valuations. But I'd also just remind listeners that I think it's important to to put valuations in the right uh, context. Uh, you know, when we think about valuations, they they really have very little correlation with short term returns over the next one, two, three, even four years. So it's it's really important to to bear that in mind. They they're much more powerful uh, when looking out over longer periods of time. But you know, just because a just because the market looks expensive. Today it is not really a. You need more than that to cause a any kind of sell-off in the in the say the next you know six to twelve months. Um, and looking at history, you know, usually you need to see some sort of growth scare or you know central bank policy error or something like that that would cause any kind of any kind of sell-off. Um, you need another trigger, so to speak. Um, but in terms of you know, a little side note there on valuation, but yeah, in terms of just getting back to our current views, yeah, just think that stocks can continue to move higher. Um, you know, just consumer spending, consumers are in really good shape. I mean, labor market is is good, wages are rising, uh, so there, there's a lot of excess savings on consumer balance sheets. So that should translate into continued pretty healthy uh, growth in consumer spending and. Consumer spending is about seventy percent of the economy, so that's crucial. Uh, you know, likewise, businesses are are also in spending mode, and and they have the financial resources to do that with with the profits that we just talked about being so strong. Um, so a lot of momentum on both the consumer side of the economy as well as the business side. And you know, Jason just touched on the Fed. Uh, you know, the Fed will be pretty key here. Uh, but as he just articulated, you know, we don't think the Fed is going to take away the punch bowl anytime soon. Uh, and and again, you know, some of these challenges that we were just talking about, we do think they will they will moderate over time. So, you know, we think uh, S and P 500 can can rise to 5,000 by the end of next year. That's about a nine percent gain from current levels, uh, which is pretty normal for a, you know, almost a one year out type of return. And then within markets, uh, we still have a cyclical bias. We like uh, from a sector perspective, energy, financial and financials. Uh, we also like healthcare and consumer discretionary. Uh, the areas that we would be underweight are the more de- the, the really defensive areas like utilities and staples. Uh, and then from a, a style perspective, we, we prefer value over growth 
and uh, prefer mid-caps over uh, large and small. David, thank you for walking us through the allocation preferences with respect to U.S. equities. And uh, the outlook does sound optimistic, though, as we've covered some potentially challenging uh, macro headwinds to be cognizant of. Those could result in periods of market volatility. You do need to be prepared, and portfolio diversification is a good way to do so. Uh, Jason, what role specifically can alternatives play here? I know this is something that the chief investment office has been talking about uh, recently to help portfolios navigate a stagflation risk as well as macro volatility? You know, one of the challenges I think that we face as investors as we look out ahead over the next year, but even still beyond, is that, well, we can have our baseline forecast. There's a lot of uncertainty of how this will all play out because we are dealing with an unprecedented you know, environment coming out of a pandemic. There's no kind of, you know, prior playbook that we can point to, which means when you think about asset allocation and portfolio construction, you have to be prepared for sort of different scenarios kind of playing out. Um, so it's not just sort of the day-to-day volatility in the market, but sort of like, you know, a year from now, are we going to have stagflation, reflation, or maybe something better or something worse? I think so you want to have portfolios that can be a little bit you know, robust across those scenarios. Uh, another factor is the interest rate environment, you know, it's incredibly low. So the hunt for yield is, is a challenge. But when you consider the level of inflation, you know, even without a stagflation-like scenario, uh, it, it's above what we've experienced for the past decade, which means that the uh, kind of real yields after you account for inflation for much of fixed income and really kind of almost any income generating asset class is incredibly low. It's, it's probably lower than it's ever been. You know, in, in many cases, they're negative. So you're you're not even keeping up with inflation. So how do you deal with these challenges of very low yields, real yields, kind of, you know, kind of portfolio diversification? I think this is where alternatives in different capacities can play some sort of role. Uh, so if we just think about the income aspect to it, uh, you know, public liquid markets, whether it's, you know, corporate bonds, the spreads you're getting that are, are very tight, and as a result, the, the yields are very low. But if you go into private markets, private credit, private real estate, you know, the income that you're getting there is, you know, you could be at least a couple percentage points higher, which, you know, is a, in, a, in a world where yields are already very low, especially real yields, that's you know, a potentially attractive, you know, alternative to give you a little bit of extra return. Um, same thing with kind of non-traditional strategies, uh, you know, such as, you know, call writing, uh, we've seen a bit of, you know, pick up an activity of people buying calls, volatility kind of goes up. Here's a chance if you believe the upside for equity markets is a little bit more capped, you know, you can write calls on your, on your you know, positions to generate some additional income. So at least thinking a little more creatively in terms of how you want to, to generate income given the, the macro environment. So that's in terms of the, the income challenge for diversification. Uh, you know, hedge funds still, I think, having a, a useful role to play here. Because a lot of the strategies are designed to have very low correlation with the overall S&P 500 or equity risk in general, which is really what dominates portfolios. You're always, when you construct a portfolio, trying to manage and, and diversify against the equity risk. Um, and so they give you that from that diversification. You, maybe it's not quite as good as bonds have been for the past 20 years, but they also don't necessarily face quite the interest rate risk of rates going higher and, and that being negative for your, you know, your bond returns. Uh, and then a third consideration is again sort of more looking more for the long term. You know, if we do have a deflation or elevated inflation environment, you know, over time the best thing that can sort of you know hedge that is you know is real assets uh, and equities, which in the short term could be impacted by inflation and higher rates. Over time, they tend to incorporate that they sort of convert in some sense into a real asset, uh, and that's going to be even more pronounced in private equity and other private markets. So when you think kind of long term, how do I get good after tax uh, or after inflation? Returns, well, private equity is, you know, is definitely an asset class that can, can generate that you know, for you. Um, and one final thing, just in terms of the private markets, that is a bit of an advantage. 
even if just sort of psychologically, when you're dealing with a lot of volatility in the marketplace, it's that you're not dealing with sort of mark to market. You know, you don't get a statement every day. You can't look at you know the stock price. You get monthly or maybe quarterly statements, which tends to smooth out some of the day-to-day volatility. It doesn't mean that the volatility, the underlying volatility of the asset is not changing. It is with the marketplace, but you're not seeing it every single day. And just not seeing that can sort of help people not kind of overreact to sort of day-to-day movements. So there is almost like a psychological benefit to having things kind of smooth out a little bit without uh, the day-to-day noise influencing your decision. So um, there is that sort of you know, kind of pure kind of benefit from going into private markets and alternatives. Okay, well, Jason, David, very helpful and productive conversation to begin the week and appreciate the clarity around CIO's macro and market outlook and how to consider positioning portfolios accordingly for a variety of potential outcomes. So much here we can follow up on, though in the meantime, wish you both a great week ahead and we'll look forward to catching back up again soon. Thank you, Dan. Thanks a lot, Dan. Absolutely. And again, today we've been joined by Jason Dreho, Head of Asset Allocation Americas, as well as David Lefkowitz, Head of Equities Americas, both from the UBS Chief Investment Office. So as a reminder to our clients and our listeners, the UBS Chief Investment Office does author a variety of publications and blogs that touch on timely market developments, asset classes, and portfolio allocation. These resources can all be located on UBS.com forward slash CIO, including the publication which both David and Jason have been making reference to during our conversation today. The November UBS House View, the Investment Strategy Guide, title is Stagflation, the 64 cent question. So for clients of UBS, you can contact your financial advisor if you would like to learn more about today's topics or if you would like to receive a copy of the publication directly. Top of the Morning is part of the UBS Market Moves podcast channel, which is available where podcasts are found including on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Pandora. Visit UBS.com forward slash studios to view the entire podcast offering, as well as the new UBS trending video series. From UBS Studios, I'm Dan Cassidy. Thank you for joining us. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at UBS.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at UBS.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.